If you have your Bibles, if you would open them, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing in our series on a kingdom worldview. The Sermon on the Mount, here in Matthew 5, also in chapter 6 and 7, tells us about the kingdom of heaven and what it means to be a part of that kingdom. The question is, how are we supposed to think if we belong to the kingdom? What is to be our worldview? Um, What is it that we assume to be true if we are the people of God? Um, How is it that we look at the world? What are the assumptions that we hold as we look at reality around us? So I've said earlier in the series, everybody has a worldview, but most people are unaware of it because it is made up of assumptions, presuppositions, things that we just take for granted that that's the way things are. And they fail to recognize that their worldview, in fact, affects every aspect of their lives. By the way, I've heard worldview mentioned a number of times recently, usually on news programs, where they talk about, well, this person has that worldview, or this worldview, that's why they do this. And it's like, yeah, people, are, I think, are becoming more aware that the intellectual dimension, the social dimension, the economic, the moral dimension, all of these are affected by a person's worldview. Because these are based on assumptions, oftentimes examining a worldview can be difficult. Um, Because it's not so much a conscious philosophy of life, like this is my philosophy of life. It's more of those things that you haven't really articulated, but it is, in fact, what you think. Some have suggested, and I followed their lead, that if we present people with a series of questions, it begins to sort of unpack what it is their worldview consists of. And as I've said in my teaching, this is always the first lecture because I want my students to realize how they view the world before we talk about other people of other times. Um, What I've tried to do in this series is to show what are the assumptions or the presuppositions behind a kingdom worldview. We've looked at four questions so far. What is first cause? What is the nature of reality? What is a human being? What happens after death? Something you may have noticed, and certainly I hope you will see today, is that the answers to these questions begin to overlap. They, in fact, build on each other. Today we come to the fifth question, and that is, what is the basis of morality? What is the basis of morality? And as we start, I think perhaps we should define morality. It is a code of conduct. the principles that distinguish between right and wrong, or good behavior and bad behavior. That is, what makes something right or wrong? As I tell my students, perhaps we should consider, is there such a thing as right? Is there such a thing as wrong? It's one of the things that we, as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom, assume to be true. That which is wrong we would call sin. And so it's disobedience. So we have the sense that there is right and wrong. So when it comes to the basis of morality, what determines if something is right or wrong? And generally there are three possibilities that are put forward. The first is that it is individual choice. 
That is, I decide if something is right or wrong, or my conscience tells me if something is right or wrong. Secondly, there's what we call social contract. And I'll talk about that later on in the sermon, but it is when a group of people who live together come to an agreement that these are the things that are right and these are the things that are wrong. And the third is that there's an outside authority. For our citizens of the kingdom, that authority is God. A kingdom worldview has its roots in the Sermon on the Mount. But one of the things I've noticed is that problems arise because people read the Sermon on the Mount and they ignore the historical context, the cultural context, the religious context, and the linguistic context. And um, as someone who teaches history, I think people do this about anything in the past. That they, they think, oh, people back then were just like us. They think just like us. And that simply is not the case. People are content to assume that um, if somehow we could be transported back in time and we were there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, um, we would receive it the same way that everybody else was. And I would argue that this is not the case. We don't have the same background. We don't have the same values or the same thought patterns. Consider the following. Those who listened to Jesus and when he gave the Sermon on the Mount were Jewish. He shared in that. Jewish. He was Jewish. His Jewishness. Uh, it's seen in his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. He ate the same food that they did in the same way that they did. He shared a vocabulary with them. Not only in terms of language, but also of customs. So when Jesus says, blessed... His listeners understand it to mean having God's favor, that someone who is blessed has God's favor. And by God, they understood him to mean the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What Jesus springs on them, because, you know, when he says blessed, and they're like, this is going to be good, you know, God's favor, he springs on them. What they do not expect is the poor in spirit. Uh, those that we might think are in fact less favored by God, we see are in fact favored by God. God acknowledges their poverty um, and blesses them as opposed to those who are like, I've got it made, I am self-sufficient. So the Sermon on the Mount comes within a particular context, but it also seeks to correct part of that context. A key portion for us today is verse, are found in verses 17 through 20. It sets the stage for the discussion of morality, which the rest of the chapter, from verse 17 to the end of chapter 5, deals with morality. Look, if you would, at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then beginning in verse number 21 to the end of the chapter, Jesus deals with six areas of morality. Um, and he does so by 
contrast, okay? There is, um, he uses it three different ways, but it's basically the same thing. In verses 21 and 33, you have heard that it was said to the people, of, uh, the people long ago. In verses 27, 38, and 43, you have heard that it was said. And then um, in verse 31, it has been said. Common to all of this is, it was said. Okay? In contrast to that, Jesus said, but I say. So this is what people have said, but this is what I say. These six statements are, in fact, um, found in the Old Testament. Okay? And so people say, wait a minute, didn't, didn't we just read that he is not here to abolish the law, but to affirm it? Um, is he setting aside the Old Testament? Not at all. You will notice that Jesus says, it was said, okay? Not, it was written. Now, you'll find that in other places where Jesus speaks of, of what we find in the Old Testament, and he says, it was written. There he's quoting the Old Testament. But here he is dealing with human traditions. The way that the Old Testament has been interpreted and taught to the people in a very narrow and legalistic way. And the contrast is between what people have been taught and what Jesus is teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, where did they get this teaching? Who said these things? Well, verse number 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Yeah, those are the guys, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They taught the people one thing and Jesus now teaches them something by contrast. Is it a new teaching? Is it a new doctrine? Is it a new interpretation? Not at all. It is a correct understanding of the law, a correct understanding of what God told his people through Moses. This is how you're supposed to live. The original intent, the original direction, what the law teaches, and all of it, by the way, points to the Lord Jesus. That's why he isn't here to abolish it. It is confirmed. It is fulfilled in him. Um, those who listened as Jesus was teaching had been taught a very narrow understanding of the law. It was external, very legalistic. You had to follow these rules. And people say, well, isn't the law rules? Yeah, but it was a very narrow understanding of what God intended. Um, Jesus has now come teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and we now want to have a kingdom worldview, showing what, in fact, is the original intent of the commandments, what he expects of his followers. It's not do this and you get into heaven, you'll win salvation, but because you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, this is how you should understand what God has said in the law. The example that comes to mind is, let's say that you're in one room and there's another room and there's a door in between and there's a keyhole, the old-fashioned keys, and you look in and when you look in, you only see a certain part of the room. That's what the, the listeners of Jesus were like. They just saw a very, because that's what they'd been taught. Jesus, on the other hand, is in the other room. He sees everything and so he is able to explain to them. So, for example, I think what is perhaps most familiar of this is when he speaks of adultery, um, you know, don't commit adultery, but he says, if you lust after a woman, 
you're guilty of committing adultery in your heart. So while people have taken it in a very narrow, narrow view of what adultery was, Jesus said, nope, it's like this. Okay? So his teaching is not an expansion of the law. It is what the law, in fact, taught. You might, at this point, you might say, Damon, you keep saying law. And aren't you somehow, in modern language, privileging law? Aren't you somehow giving it a higher position that it should have? Um, why should we accept the law as authoritative? Good question. Answer, because God gave it. God gave the law. Stop and think a minute. I think this is crucial. What determines if something is morally right or wrong, good or evil? Simply put, our question today, what is the basis of morality? We have three choices. The first two are wrong. The third one is the kingdom view. The first is that good and evil really exist. There is an external, there's a universal standard of this is good and this is evil. And God must conform to those standards. That's wrong. Okay. Because God is first cause. Good and evil are not first cause. God is first cause. The second is that good and evil are only what God decides that they are. So God's like, yeah, I think that'll be okay. And no, that's really bad. That somehow it is something that he has decided. And so one could argue it is arbitrary. This is also wrong. The third possibility, which is the reality, is that God's character determines what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. Anything that is contrary to God's nature is wrong, is evil. This isn't possible if you could imagine that if God did nothing, if God was just there, anything that is contrary to his nature would be, it'd be wrong. But God isn't just there. God has spoken. He's given his law to say to his people, this is how you're supposed to live. Okay. So God's character determines morality. And why do we say this? Because God is first cause. And everything after that is effect. Okay? So it is God's character that, in fact, is the basis of morality. First cause, as I mentioned earlier, is what Aristotle called the unmoved mover. It's uncaused cause. Nothing is behind God. God is the very first thing. Um, and as I said, when we started this series, for me, the critical question is, is first cause personal or impersonal? Well, God is personal. God is person. And his character, who he is as God, has determined what is right and what is wrong. Okay. When it comes to the matter of personality, of being a person, what comes to mind? When we're thinking of God, what do we think of? There's a number of things, but I've mentioned before, there is will, there is reason or rationality, there is love, and there is personality, his characteristics, his attributes. God's character is not subject to change. Okay? It is the basis of morality. It is the basis of determining what is right and wrong. 
On the other hand, we are sinners. We are very changeable <laughs> from one moment to the next. One day we might say, well, yeah, I think that's okay. And the next day we might turn around and say, no, I think that's actually a very terrible thing. We are sinners. What we do, contrary to God's nature, is in fact sin. And in that sense, we are ungodly. We're not like God, who is perfect. We are ungodly. In the book of Jude, this really comes through clearly. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In Romans 1.18, we hear the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. So that which is contrary to God's character is in fact wrong. That, that's the basis of morality. God is holy, God is perfect, and anything that is different than God is in fact wrong. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows this to us as he gives us a series of contrasts of moral behavior. The, they had been taught by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law a very narrow view. And so when it came, for example, to murder, this is in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So don't kill anyone, okay? I haven't killed anyone, so I'm good, right? He goes on to say, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So apparently, do not murder doesn't simply mean don't kill somebody physically. But if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. Jesus also speaks of adultery, of divorce, of oaths. He says, let your yes be yes, your no, no. Of revenge, an eye for an eye. And lastly, we are to love our neighbor and not hate our enemy. He's like, you, you, you know, people said, love your, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's not what God said. The last verse in chapter 5, by the way, if you look to the end of chapter 5, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, this sounds really unrealistic, doesn't it? But it's not new. In Leviticus 19, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. We are to be like God. If I'm a citizen of the kingdom, the basis of morality for me is God's character. That's what determines what is right and what is wrong. Well, this does not make people happy, in part because of their view of God. Many suspect that the Christian God is morally primitive, even morally inferior to them. Let me give you some examples of his supposed moral inferiority. He is intolerant of differences in sexual orientation. People would say, I'm not. I'm very tolerant. I'm more tolerant than God. Therefore, I am more moral than God is. Others would say God is vindictive. Eternal punishment, hell. I would never do that even to my worst enemy. Therefore, God is morally inferior to me. God seems egotistical and self-centered, wanting people to worship him. 
demanding something for his own glory. It seems, some would argue, that God is afraid of the truth, that science is the quest for truth, and Christianity seems afraid of such a quest. Um, And all of these are, in fact, wrong, beyond being wrong. They assume that I have the moral standard, that in fact, eternally there was good and evil, and God is after good and evil, and I'm after God. And so when I follow what I think is right and wrong, then I'm morally superior to God. No. God is first cause. His character determines what is right and what is wrong. But we live in this world, we breathe the same air, both physically and culturally, and there may be times in our lives when we may think, I know better than God, I'm more tolerant, I'm not so judgmental, I love people more than God does, and in saying this, we are absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. People think, Who does God think he is to limit my freedom? He's not the boss of me. Actually, he is. Okay? People tend to think of God as being petty. They see themselves as superior to the infinite personal God. But, you know, when people say, what gives God the right to do something... That is absolutely, that's the wrong question. Because God is first cause to speak of him having the right to do something is, is totally wrong. It doesn't make sense. He is first cause. He's there before everything else. So it's not like God said, could I please have the right to judge people? No. He is first cause. He was there before all things. And that is why when we began this series, it's the very first question we ask. What is first cause? It determines everything that follows it. Otherwise, we will look to another source for morality. I've mentioned this a number of times, but people like to say, I follow the Ten Commandments. And in different places in this country, they want to put the Ten Commandments on City Hall or in the public square. They want to say, We are good people. We follow the Ten Commandments. But they usually skip the very first part of the Ten Commandments. How do the Ten Commandments begin? By the way, it's given to us in Deuteronomy 5 and in Exodus chapter 20. And it's the same in both. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, God is God. That's the basis of morality. We can't skip that and say, okay, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, all these things. Yeah, I I follow this. No, let's begin at the beginning. I am the Lord your God. An article that came out a couple of years ago entitled, An Oxford Researcher Says There Are Seven Moral Rules That Unite Humanity. He says everyone everywhere shares a common moral code. Uh, Let me read to you a part of it. In 2012, Oliver Scott Curry was an anthropology lecturer at the University of Oxford. 
One day he organized a debate among his students about whether morality was innate or acquired. Do you have it or do you have to learn it? One side argued passionately that morality was the same everywhere. The other, that morals were different everywhere. Quote, I realized that obviously no one really knew and so decided to find out for myself. Close quote, Curry says. Seven years later, Curry, now a senior researcher at Oxford's Institute for Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology, can offer up an answer to the seemingly ginormous question of what morality is and how it does or doesn't vary around the world. In other words, he wants to know what is morality and what is the basis? I mean, what do we find? Morality, he says, is meant to promote cooperation. Um, For his study, Curry's group studied uh, ethnographic accounts of ethics from 60 societies across over 600 sources. The universal rules of morality are help your family, help your group, return favors, be brave, defer to superiors, divide resources, respect others' property. The team found that these seven cooperative behaviors were considered morally good in 99.9% of cases across cultures. And one might say, well, that that sounds good, and that sounds a little like the Ten Commandments. But his conclusion was, the reason that people decide what is right or wrong is for mutual cooperation. In other words, something I mentioned earlier, it's a social contract. In the West, at least, this is something that emerged in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. An implicit agreement among the members of a society to cooperate for social benefits, uh, for example, by sacrificing some individual freedom for state protection. So, a uh, social contract is, let's say, let's say that we are a community, and we're like, okay, we're in the same boat, we've got to live together, but we need to come up with some rules, okay? What are the things that people should do? What are the things that they cannot do? And if they, don't do, if they do these things, then in fact there will be consequences. Um, people like Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, they use this as a means for establishing or giving authority to the government. That you have entered into a social contract. If you become a citizen of a particular state, you say, yes, I agree to these laws that you have. Okay. That might have been true in this country several decades but I would ago, but I would argue it's not the case anymore. In our present society, it's not social contract but individual choice, which is seen as the basis of morality. And what is the basis of personal choices? All moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference expression of attitude or feeling insofar as they are moral or evaluative in nature. So the question is not today, if you go out and ask somebody, is this right or is this wrong? Rather, it's how do you feel about this? What is your feeling about this particular action? How do you benefit from this? And who are those who oppose what you think, in fact, is what you want to do? And why do they do that? Um, one of the consequences, and we're seeing it now, is that individuals, in fact, are imposing on others what they believe to be right or wrong. Okay? And then they tell the state, they tell the government, you need to pass laws 
that will say that what I say is in fact the case. Okay? They want the government to be forced to acknowledge that what they think is in fact the case. It is really quite confusing at times when you have people saying, I identify as this, uh, that they are biologically male, but they say, I identify as female, and now they want the state to acknowledge that, in fact, I am female, even though biologically I'm male. And, and in some cases, the states have gone along with that. How do we get to this point? How do we get to the point where the basis of morality is no longer God, it's no longer even social contract, but it's the individual. Well, some would point back to Descartes, the famous, I think, therefore I am, you know, that in fact the thinking individual is the primary cause. Um, we are primary in determining what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, I think we need to go back a bit farther than that. You will not surely die the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And ever since Eve and Adam ate from the tree that they were told not to, humanity has sought to be the basis of morality. That it is human beings who determine what is right and what is wrong. See, it isn't simply that they would know what is good and evil. They would determine what is good and what is evil. By the way, another consequence of the individual being the basis of morality is that the rules keep changing. They keep changing. That is, what might be considered wrong today could be considered right tomorrow. And if you've been watching the news at all for the last couple of years... People are now going back and uh, canceling people from the past because they don't measure up to standards today. It's like the rules have changed. Okay? In the past, it could be a king or an emperor, you know, the person who had the ultimate say. They would say, this is the law. And they themselves were not subject to the law. They would simply say, this is the law. And then who knows, next year they might say, yeah, forget that, this is the law. That in fact, it can change. And let's, as you get older as a human being, the things that you used to think, you no longer think, and you can see how that this is not a good basis for morality because I myself keep changing. We see it in our society today, the ever-changing standards of right and wrong with individuals shouting that they and they alone know and determine what is right or wrong. But we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We hold that God is the basis of morality. And yet sometimes we are reluctant. We are reluctant in this matter, reluctant to embrace it fully because there are things that disturb us. What about God's wrath? What about God being angry? The scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, speak of God's anger. And it sounds almost primitive. I, I, I don't like to think that I worship a God who gets angry. 
And if we start down that road before we know it, he no longer can be the basis of morality because, yeah, I, I don't know that this is someone that I can trust. I think that we think this way because when we think of anger, we think of human anger. When we get angry, uh, which is oftentimes badly motivated it's for the wrong reason, it's badly acted out, you know, when we lose our temper, um, we lose control, and so we imagine, oh, that's when God gets angry, that's the way he is. So I, I don't know that, yeah, I, I'm not comfortable with him being my God. Think of the language we use when we speak of anger. Blind rage, out of control, beside oneself. Somebody lost it, they blew up. Well, if you apply this to God, then yeah, it certainly seems that this is someone less than I think what we would what we would want to follow whom we would want to call first cause it is worth noting that the Bible doesn't say that anger is wrong in the Old Testament and the New Testament in Ephesians in your anger do not sin Paul says you can get angry just don't sin when you get angry In James chapter 1, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James doesn't say, don't ever get angry. He simply says, be slow. You know, think about it. Don't lose control. There are things, in fact, that we should be angry about. By the way, James continues, um, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God deserves. But see, human anger and God's anger are quite different. God is, in fact, slow to anger. And there may be verses that trouble us, like in Psalm 2. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed on your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. That may seem to contradict other passages. That's for another sermon or series. But no, God's anger is, in fact, a perfect and a holy anger. I do find it fascinating that there are people who are really troubled by God's anger. When you talk to them, they're like, yeah, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because he gets angry, because he loses his temper, he does these things against people, he judges people. And yet at the same time, they would say, why doesn't God do something about that person or that event? You know, for example, why doesn't God kill serial killers before they start killing people? Why doesn't God save all those people? Why doesn't God kill this person? Well, that certainly sounds like an angry response. Yeah, we're not consistent. One writer put it this way, somehow, surely, or strangely, and to us, sometimes even annoyingly, the creator God will not simply abolish evil from his world. I think this really bothers us. The basis of morality is God, but God doesn't do anything about evil in the world. In the series on evil, we saw that there are three things that characterize the place of evil or our response to it in the world today. First of all, we ignore evil when it doesn't hit us in the face. You know, when when it doesn't affect us, we don't really think about it. Secondly, we are shocked. We are surprised when it does. And thirdly, we react in immature and dangerous ways as a result. 
you and I cannot be trusted to be the arbiters of morality. We cannot be the basis of morality. We cannot be the judges of what is right and wrong. God is the basis of morality. Okay, well, what about the anger thing? What about that? God has certain attributes, certain characteristics. Anger is not one of them. God is love. We know that God is holy. But we would not say that God is angry. Anger, God's wrath, is a response to ungodliness. So here is God who is the basis of morality. This is what is right. And when someone does something that is wrong, then in fact he responds, and he responds in anger. Which means, theoretically, if there had never been any sin, ever, then God would never, ever be angry. Anger is his response to that which is contrary to his nature. But now we know that there is evil in the world. Do we want God to take it seriously? Absolutely. We want God to do something. And sort of in the back of our mind is, he would know what's the right thing to do because he knows what is right and what is wrong. But we're inconsistent here. So, for example, we want God to do something about pedophiles, those who would violate children. That's, we want God to strike them dead. Okay, what about adultery? Well, don't, don't be a prude, okay? Don't be prudish. You know, fornication, that, don't, you know, we are not consistent. We want God to act based on what we think is right and what is wrong. God's wrath is against anything that does not conform to his character. And his character is the basis of morality. We saw in dealing with uh, the first cause as personal, that personhood consists of will, rationality, love, and perhaps other aspects. And as I mentioned in that early, earlier sermon, during the Middle Ages, some people wanted to sort of promote God and say God is sovereign. And so they said God created out of will. It was his sheer will he created the world. And Aquinas came along and said, actually, it was his reason. He reasoned it out. He figured out the universe, and then he spoke, and the universe came into being. And as I said, I think they both missed the point, and that is that God created out of love not out of will, not out of reason, but out of love. And his character of love is the basis, it is the foundation of morality. I don't know if you hear people saying, you need to speak truth to power. You know what they're doing? Speak truth, reason, to power, will. I don't ever hear people saying, you need to speak in love. And as God's people, we need to understand that central to God's being and his existence is, in fact, his love. In Matthew 22, Jesus is confronted by a series of religious leaders. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, 
which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. The life of the Trinity, of the triune God, first cause, we find that the Father freely loves the Son, and the Son freely loves the Father, and the Father freely loves the Spirit, and the Spirit freely loves the Father and the Son. We find this, what some have called a dance, between the three of them as they, in fact, love each other. It is the basis of all existence. This giving and receiving between the Father, Son, and Spirit is life. And this life we may in fact call love. And so simply put, the basis of morality is God's love. The characteristic of God, the attribute of God, which is love. And that is demonstrated supremely in the incarnation, in the life in the teachings, in the passion, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reaction of a holy God to evil is wrath, but his reaction of his love to those under wrath is mercy. Why would God show any mercy to anyone, ever? It's a question people don't usually ask. They want to know why God allows bad things to happen. Why does he ever show mercy? It is a reflection of his character of love. When he responds with anger, he still love. I've told this story many times, but um, when Shelton and Karen and Lindsay live with me next door, um, there was an incident, I think Lindsay was about two, maybe a little more, and for whatever reason, he had found a marble and he put it in his mouth. If you know anything, that's not a good thing to do. That can be dangerous. And Karen took it from him and she said to him, if you ever do that again, I will spank you harder than I've ever spanked you before. His eyes got big like that. My eyes got big like that. It's like, that seems harsh. But no, that anger is right. You're, she was right to be angry and to say, don't ever do that again. In the same way, when God judges people, when he corrects them, he's doing it out of love. The anger is based in love. It's because Karen loved Lindsay that she wants him to be safe that she tells him not to do that. In John 3.16, we read the familiar words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Most people don't know John 3.17, the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God loved the world, that's why he sent his son. The world is already condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. That's, that's, it's already happened, okay? It's an accomplished fact. But in God's love, he sent his son 
to save those who are ungodly, contrary to him, who do ungodly things in ungodly ways. He sent his son to give them life. We want our lives to matter. We want our lives to have significance. I would say it is the love of God, in fact, that shows, that gives our lives significance. Love that is given to those made in his image. Wrath, where God corrects us. I really wonder what would have happened if Karen had not corrected Lindsay. Could there have been an event later in his childhood where he would have put a marble in his mouth and swallowed and choked on it possibly? Wrath, anger, in fact, has love behind it. God wants what is best for people. In Lamentations 3, we read, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But in closing, I want you to look at the last part of Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles that open there, I'm going to read verses 43 to the end of the chapter and see God's love as the basis of morality, of what is right and wrong. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our Heavenly Father, who is in fact the basis of all morality. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that we sort of enjoy being the ones to determine what is right and what is wrong, and they're then judging others based on our standards. We also freely confess that we are not consistent to our standards. We want to decide what is right and wrong, but then we want to be free from any consequences of breaking those. I thank you for who you are, the eternal God who is holy, who is love, that all things flow from you, The fact that we have any sense of right and wrong comes from you. But you've not left us to our own imaginations. You've told us, you've given your law and said, these are the things you should do, these are the things you should not do. They're not arbitrary. You didn't just make them up. They are a revelation of who you are. A holy God who is perfect. And you call us to be holy as you are holy. Help us to think these things through in the days to come. A lot has been said, perhaps not as clearly as it could have been. 
May your spirit work in our hearts and give us understanding. And may we, in gratitude, bow before you, fall on our faces before you, and say thank you that you are the source of us knowing what is right and wrong because you are a God of love. You're not a capricious God who changes from day to day. You are the eternally faithful God, holy, and you are love. I thank you for this time together on this first Sunday of a new year. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence in all that we do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.